Hello everyone, thank you for tuning in. You're listening to the Sound Barrier, Northeast State's official podcast, where we'll be breaking the barrier by getting to know some of our faculty, staff, and students. And today we've got a very special guest, close to home to me, Miss Lisa Poole, Associate Professor of Psychology, and most of you may know her by the Psychology Goddess. Is that self-proclaimed or was that given to you? That is not self-proclaimed. It was given to me. I just perpetuate it every semester so students will remember. Very good. Very good. So uh, we're excited to have her on. Uh, Yes, she is, in fact, my mother. She's been teaching here for over 20 years full time, and she's held a number of different roles at the college. She has a master's degree in counseling, spent some time as a school counselor, Worked here in the TRIO office, counseling department, you name it. Mom has probably had her hands on it. Uh, So she's well-versed, especially in the field of psychology. And today we're going to be talking about the psychology of fear. I do want to make a quick disclaimer before we get going, though, that what we talk about today is not to be taken as a clinical description. It is for entertainment purposes only. Inherently, we are not experts in this field. We just happen to know a little bit more about behavior and the mind than the average individual. So, Mom, to start you off lightly, why did you ultimately decide to get a degree in counseling in the first place? Well, at Carson Newman undergrad, I was an English and communication arts major, and I was going to become the next Barbara Walters. Not everybody knows who Barbara Walters is, but that's what I wanted to do. But then I found out that maybe I could not support myself as well as I wanted to. So the family fallback is education and psychology and come from a long line of educators. And so ETSU was here. I moved here. Counseling looked interesting. And uh, we decided to go down that path. Sounds good. What ultimately got you into teaching, though? I know you, you got your counseling degree, and then, but you did teach for a little while. I did teach high school English right. for a little while, and I had gotten, and I liked that. I liked teaching, being with the students, and so I, when I graduated from ETSU, I got a counseling position at an elementary school and was fortunate enough to be able to teach small classes and found out that I really liked it, had the opportunity to come here and teach adjunct in the early 90s, took that, and I decided this is what I wanted to do. So I kind of just want to step right into the fear factor here, the psychology of fear, Um, And I guess fear can, um, you know, when we're children, is fear an innate, um, I guess, feature of the human mind? Is it natural for us to experience fear? Are there social factors to it? Is it learned, perhaps? Well, it's interesting. Normally, fear can express itself from ages two to five. But we see fear earlier than that in children, particularly with separation anxiety, which occurs the first year of life. So you, I think that you could say that maybe it is just dependent upon nature versus nurture. If a child is born maybe with the tendency to be fearful, the environment can either push them towards that or pull them back from that. And we see with like examples in the history of psychology with the little Albert experiment. So 
certain things we have an innate uh, fear to, such as loud noises. And within that experiment, you see um, John B. Watson. What he did was he trained little Albert to be fearful of a bunch of different things. Initially, it was supposed to be a few different things like a dog, a rabbit, you name it. But ultimately what happened is little Albert generalized and he became fearful of a lot of different things that related to the initial conditioning um, uh, time frame. And so it showed that not only do we have fears such as being fearful of loud noises from a very early age, but also that we can condition those to other items. So like you said, it's both a nature and a nurture aspect. And I think we can look at it culturally too, because in our culture, children have a little less to fear globally. But when we're looking now at Israel and we've seen the Ukraine, those children grow up in quite a different environment and their fears are different and maybe much more profound. How does fear kind of manifest itself, um, or does it at all, in our bodies, like physiologically? Because I've read things about how there are a lot of cells in your stomach when they refer to a gut feeling. I had mm -hmm. a gut feeling about something. Um, how does fear, anxiety manifest in our bodies physically? Does it have, are, are, is there a link between the two, and, and how does that happen, if at all? Oh, there's a definite powerful mind-body connection. And I think we in psychology knew that way before the medical professionals did. Fear is stored a lot in our gut. And if you read books concerning fear, it tells you to listen to your gut feeling. Now, some interesting re physiological research about fear that's going on now is looking at the amygdala which is considered the fear center in the brain. And they're looking at people who have OCD maybe not being able to turn off that fear center in the amygdala in the brain. You know, Tom, you and I, we leave our homes in the morning. We know we've turned that iron off or that stove off or whatever. But for people with OCD, they are continually fearful. I've got to go back and turn that off. Or they hit a bump in the road and they think that they've hit somebody. So they're looking at not being able to turn that fear factor off and maybe being able to help people with OCD and phobias and fears, being able to overcome that. Yeah, and going off on that, uh, regarding the amygdala, some individuals may have an underactive mm -hmm. amygdala that's as well. Correct. So mm -hmm. would you think that maybe that's why some individuals are more so sensation seekers, where they, have, they seek out behaviors or activities that for an individual who, quote unquote, has a normal activity within their amygdala, um, they think that whatever this person doing, like I would never engage in that activity. But for some people, they need that stimulation to achieve the same result that we do in normal activities, such as going on a hike, uh, et cetera. So, mm -hmm. um, yeah, with your personality types, there are people who seek fearful activities, high adrenaline activities, not only in their personal life, but even they'll look for jobs that have that high arousal factor that they can incorporate into their everyday life. 
It's really interesting. I I, uh, I have OCD. I was clinically diagnosed when I was 11, so I, I tap outlets four times. If I don't, my house will catch on fire and my cats will die. Um, I can't explain it. But ironically enough, I have the OCD, but I'm, I still seek out... Um, adrenaline I guess things that would cause adrenaline rushes like skydiving and I guess high what many consider high risk activities so it's just interesting when you were you know the question you asked like maybe people like with the uh, amygdala maybe like a not a malfunctioning amygdala but maybe one that's on the opposite end of the spectrum like with someone with OCD there's perhaps might be overactive and then you know there uh people's might not be as, I guess, reactive uh, compared to someone with OCD. It's just kind of funny that spectrum when I experience these fears, these really illogical fears, OCD-related fears, yet still seek out those adrenaline rushes. It's kind of a really big contradiction that not even I can, I can't, I can't explain it or begin to understand it. Do you think in some way your body not that you're addicted to that, but you are seeking that because that's what you've known throughout your entire life. I, I really don't know. There's so many things about the brain that we don't understand. And that's why psychology is so interesting to me. It, it is. I, uh, I don't know if it's because it's more of a, maybe a more logical fear, perhaps. Maybe, you know, I, I know the thing about OCD is, re- you know, the fears are illogical but they still affect you. So that's kind of like the trap you're, you're trapped in your brain almost. It's like, you know, you know, what's logical and what's not. Whereas, you know, skydiving, it seems like everyone would be afraid of that. It's a normal fear. Like, you know, you're plummeting toward the earth at 120 miles an hour. I think I would like to think anyone would be afraid of doing that. So, but tell them what you just uh did. (laughs) (laughs) But but it's just interesting, and it's almost like you're trying to kind of take a control of it, almost. It's about that control. So you can't control the fears with OCD, but you can control putting yourself in those situations, like skydiving, base jumping, uh, deep sea diving, um, ones that would generally generate fear amongst, you know, the normal normal population. We do seek to be in control. Mm -hmm. So I would say that's a very powerful factor. Yeah. There's a couple things that come to mind. Have you seen, Mom, the documentary called Free Solo? I have not. So there's an individual who he uh, climbs the sides of uh, rock formations, and he climbed the Yosemite um, without any sort of protective, you know, uh, equipment. So he compli- he climbs these rock structures without uh, completely without any safety, and the thing is, is they scanned his brain, and his amygdala was significantly underactive. He knows what he's doing, obviously, but uh, it t- it takes more stimulation for him to achieve the same result. Exactly. Uh, as far as the activity within that area of his brain, so I found that fascinating, and. I'm not going to make a clinical, again, this is not clinical, this is my perspective, but from a lot of literature that I've seen, you know, an underactive amygdala may be associated with um, antisocial personality disorder as well. And I'm not saying that this individual has ASPD, but one of the things that's associated with that disorder is an underactive amygdala. Yeah, and every person is different. Her experience is not going to be your experience. So I think that's important to note. 
Why, why, why do you think fear is a healthy thing? I mean, it may be good to be afraid of things that are dangerous, but what, what aspects of life are, is fear kind of a good, healthy thing, not only for being cautious, but for like pushing out of the comfort zones as I mean, we hear about, you know, breaking out of the comfort zone. Um, why is that? Why is that a good thing to be kind of afraid and take that risk anyway? Well, when we were talking before the podcast, and and Matthew has had jobs where it's really had taken him out of his comfort zone, and he has grown from that. And I think that's one of the most amazing things that fear can do for us is it does get us out of our comfort zone and into trying new things. Um, how long did it take you to decide, hey, I'm going to go skydive? 11 years. <laughs> I put it on my bucket list, I think, when I was 16 in high school. So it took 11, over a decade for me to finally take, to finally push back past that fear. And uh, it brought the most surreal, euphoric experience uh-huh. of my life. Um, ironically, I just had to push past through a bunch of anxiety, a bunch of fear. and um, And you didn't give up? And you did it. You did it. Well, once you're out of the plane, I guess I didn't have an option to give up <laughs> at that point. <laughs> so I guess once my brain got past that, well, it is what it is now. Mm-hmm. It's You don't have any other choice. Why be afraid at exactly. this point? And I guess it was also a cocktail of chemicals, adrenaline, serotonin, dopamine. Uh, you know, again, another physiological component um, in your body. Uh, a lot of people, you know, think of myself included, fear isn't really a tangible thing. It's something you can't see. You can't experience someone else's fear. But it's just really interesting, you all bringing up the studies with uh, brain, uh, I guess, brain compositions, amygdalas, overactive, underactive. And, you know, it's easy to see that there must be physical components to this. It's just not physical components we can see. Exactly, exactly. And going back to Tom's question, too, I talk to my students all the time about test anxiety. And I tell them that it's okay to be a little anxious, not exactly fearful, because a little anxiety might help you do a little bit better. But when it comes to be debilitating, that's not where you want to be. When is fear, say if you're a student about to take a a midterm or a final exam and you're a little bit nervous, is that... um, a good thing or maybe kind of, is it a bad thing or is it kind of a good thing? Is it good to have a level of fear that you have to face to break out of your comfort zone? I think it's good to have, but again, you don't want it to become overwhelming and debilitating to the point I have had students who have actually had to leave class during a test because they became ill and that was due to their anxiety and their fear. So a little bit's okay, but you cannot let it overwhelm you. Yeah, we like to think of it like a bell curve, where the stress it has a certain point where it can actually propel you to be more focused and more aware in the moment. But whenever you start to go on the other end of that bell curve is where you begin to experience distress, which is bad stress. Mm-hmm. And that can actually inhibit your ability to perform. You can kind of think about it like athletes in a game where you know, maybe at the beginning or toward the middle of the game, they're not as, it's not as intense maybe, so they may play a little bit loose. But let's say that we get toward the end of a game 
and uh, there's a moment of whether or not this play or drive is going to decide the game entirely. People may get uh, so overly anxious that they, quote-unquote, in the sports world, they call it choke. And it's because they're feeling so anxious or mm -hmm. so distressed in the moment that their performance is actually inhibited as mm -hmm. a result. And a good, an interesting thing about social psychology is that the presence of a group can help you perform or it can hurt your performance. And that all has to do with fear and anxiety. Absolutely. Too. In what areas, does, taking a little more, talking a little bit more about um, fear and the good and the bad of it, when does fear become unhealthy and starts, you know, when it starts manifesting into psychological problems like anxiety, depression, you talked about phobias, uh, and we're going to get in, I'm going to ask you something else about the, uh, as I call it, the fear industry in a little bit. Um, but when, when fears uh, start manifesting themselves in those ways, is that is that learned or is that necessarily genetic? Because you'll hear something like, well, your, your father, your mother, your grandfather was afraid of this and this, and you're just like them. Um, so uh, are fears always learned or are they somewhat programmed into our DNA to be a little bit more afraid of certain things than others. Now, something that I find very interesting is what they call generational trauma. Okay. Basically saying that fear and anxiety can be passed down from generation to generation. Uh, for example, if you had an ancestor who was in a concentration camp, of course, you did not share that experience, but maybe somewhere in the brain chemistry that has triggered in you an anxiety or a fear, and you really don't know where that has come from. But according to this theory, that came from your ancestor who was in that concentration camp. Um, that kind of fear, I think we would term as being more innate as opposed to, of course, learned. You know, John Locke said, we're a blank slate. Everything, you're, you're, you're born a, a, a blank personality and your environment writes on you who you are going to be. Now, if you are born into an environment where there is a lot of fear, a lot of uncertainty. Uh, you know, Erickson says that during that first year of life, we don't remember the exact event, but we can perhaps remember the trauma and the emotional feeling generated from that event. So I think the question of fear being innate or learned, it's both. Um, you know, any study that you read could have it be one or the other or maybe a combination of the two. Makes sense. Like, <clears throat> some fears are reflexive. We are born with them, but through our environment. And here's the thing about the mind is we may not be aware of every single mental faculty that's influencing so how we feel or what we do from moment to moment. So, like you said, although we can't consciously remember some of the trauma that happened before the age of one or two years old, that's still stored somewhere 
and can influence us as we age. That is very true. And Tom, you mentioned a fear industry. Yes. Oh my gosh, there is a definite fear industry. It, now what? Now, it, and like any industry, it's it's of course predicated on making vast sums of money from its customers slash mm-hmm. victims. Um, I have a couple. There's kind of a, a different a couple questions I have about this. There's certainly. Uh, if you follow news, and I don't want to say news necessarily, but media or certainly um, certain product lines even and, and companies around the world like to keep people afraid. If you don't have this, it's like there's something called FOMO, the fear of missing out, mm-hmm. which, oh, if I don't have this, I'm not a complete human being. Exactly. And either it's my cholesterol or somebody's going to break in or there's brown recluse spiders in the yard or uh, whatever. There's a myriad amount of, of fears that are constantly being pushed on us. And the end result of that is you need to buy this product to feel safe and to feel safe and comforted. Why is that work? Why does that work on people? Why does that work in the psychology of people that, Oh, I need this or I'm going to be. Well, the, the media knows that fear has eyeballs. You mm-hmm. put something out there concerning a fear or what you should have or shouldn't have, and that's going to get some attention. That's going to get some eyeballs. Um, and, you know, we're, we were talking before the podcast about haunted houses and things. People want to be scared, but I think they want to be scared in a controlled environment to, to where they know they're going to come out of this okay. But in between, they're going to get some adrenaline. They're going to get some um, stimulation from yeah. it that you know it it hits that bone that they need. But it's not so distressing to where it's like, oh my gosh, my life is in danger. Actually... You know, your life is not in danger, so it's a controlled type of fear. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yes, I think that is absolutely correct. I, I couldn't agree more. And. Something that Tom had mentioned and we've talked about before, but the brain is really adaptive, right? So like spicy food, the more we eat, the more our body gets used to it, Mm -hmm. right? And so when it comes to fear, and this is a whole area within clinical psychology, we may consider it exposure therapy. Mm -hmm. One of the best things to get through an anxious either item or moment is to expose yourself to it. Maybe not all at once, but slowly and surely. Through systematic desensitization, you know, baby steps. Um, I had a student one time who had a fear of bridges, a phobia of bridges. And, you know, to get here from 36, you've got to go across a bridge. So she would drive miles out of her way. So if you were going to use exposure therapy with her, systematic desensitization, you would just take baby steps. She would drive to the road where the bridge was. The next day, she would drive a little further. The next day, she might drive up to the bridge and stop. So, Or if a child has school phobia, afraid to go to school, the same thing, systematic desensitization. They make it to the sidewalk the first day, to the door the second day, in the door the third day. So exposure systematically does help with fear. I agree with that. 
one of my biggest fears, and I don't know that I really told you this, but it was public speaking. And I, I mean, I think that's most people's, one of their it's, top fears. It's the top fear. It's above death. Yeah, I believe it. <laughs> Holy cow. Yeah. Death is second and <laughs> okay. public speaking is first, I believe. Now, again, that could have changed, but. Yeah. And that's what I will occasionally tell students is I don't know how I became a teacher because I was so deathly petrified of talking in front of people. But because I had little moments of experience in college, had to do presentations, had to go through communications classes, got involved in clubs where I was effectively voluntold to speak in front of people. Although I wasn't good at it, although I sounded very nervous, I was still systematically desensitizing myself to public speaking to where now, sometimes I'll be in the middle of a lecture and I'll be like, I can't believe I'm doing this right now. <laughs> because <laughs> younger me would have never been able to do so. And does that make you feel good? It does. It, it, and that's it makes of, you feel like you've accomplished something. Exactly. And that's one of the positive things, like you, we've talked about control, and especially with phobias and everything like that. Um, you know, we engage in safety behaviors as a result to momentarily alleviate the anxiety we're experiencing. But in the long term, it's not productive. Just because something is effective in the short term does not make it productive long term. And I True. think that... Um, as just as we've discussed to kind of put, uh, tie a bow on it is just that as we take control and as we know that most things in life are not going to lead to you know an actual threat to our health or well-being whenever we come out on the other side although it's not pleasant in the moment there's a feeling of accomplishment on the other side where eventually it will become a more manageable anxiety it may not go away completely but you at least know how to manage it Talking about like managing fear in, in a controlled environment or f of fear. Now, Halloween, certainly uh, a very fun um, holiday for some, kind of a, a spooky good time as we kind of think of it. And also, of course, the Day of the Dead, um, as others also celebrate. How, do the, how does that holiday kind of um, serve psychologically but also culturally for people to deal with death? Because we mentioned death... Of course, gen public speaking, number one, death, kind of one of the major sources of fear out there because it's, you know, it's all, it's certainly. It's unknown. It, yeah, it's unknown and it's, no one's getting out of it. But what, uh, what kind of purpose does Halloween and the Day of the Dead serve culturally and for a society to at least uh, remember those who have passed on and kind of have a little bit of, a little bit of fun and a little bit of. I guess taking some of the stress out of that that lingering fear. Or how does it work? Well, I know the Day of the Dead. Uh, my Hispanic friends tell me that it's not scary. It's not supposed to be a scary holiday. It's supposed to be one of honor. They are honoring the people who have passed, and they will actually go to the cemeteries. And they will have food. They will have picnics in the cemeteries. And they are there to honor their ancestors. So for them, I don't get the feeling that it's really scary. But I think that maybe it helps people face death in that culture because they know that it's really not something to be feared but honored, maybe. Right. 
Now, Halloween, I think, is more of a time you get to dress up and you get to be another character. You get to be another personality. And, you know, that can always be fun. You get a, a chance if you want to be a little mean. Well, let's don't say mean. Let's, a little spooky. A little spooky, you know. In my day, although I never did this, you know, we would go out and toilet paper people's yards. And the fear there was, you know, you could very easily get caught, which some of my friends did. I won't, again, I don't think I was ever a part of that. Of course not. (laughs) (laughs) So I think Halloween gives us a chance to step out of our comfort zone in that way a little bit. Plus, you know, watching scary movies and, and getting to be scared a little bit, but yet knowing that it's safe. It's just Halloween. So what kind of effect does, I guess, culture have? Culture, spirituality, even religion, maybe. What kind of effect could that have on fear? Oh, that's a big question. Sorry, I just just kind of popped in my brain. Well, but (laughs) but that's a good question. That's a good question because culturally, uh, you know, I think we've already spoken a little bit with the Day of the Dead and how uh, that's more of a cultural phenomenon than it is a fear phenomenon. Um. Do you think it's more commercialized here in the, in the oh, United definitely. States? It's a way to make money. Mm-hmm. It's, again, our fear industry. Is that The fear yeah. industry, the yes. The fear industry. Because, you know, well, the thing is, you're going to buy candy to give out because you don't want people to do tricks to your house. Right. So you're going to, and you're going to buy costumes. And you're going to go see scary movies, and you're going to uh, go to haunted houses, and you're going to, you know, do all these different things that you don't normally do on, you know, August 16th. Right. It's mm-hmm. October 31st. Let's be, you know, a little bit mean. Yeah, like a suspension of reality. Yes, I think so. For, That's a better, a not mean, suspension of reality. There you go. I'm so glad that I birthed you. (laughs) (laughs) We may cut that. (laughs) But I just had to say it. (laughs) Okay. So as far as we kind of talked about it, but in what areas do you think in our life is fear more so a healthy thing? We talked about the gut feeling, you know, your intuition. What's your your, just your opinion on how much we should trust our gut in a moment or our intuition? Oh, I'm a firm believer in trusting your gut and your intuition. And I think probably if we went around this circle, we would all have experiences where our gut kicked in and we made a decision based off that uh, intuition or gut instinct. And you hear stories of people who have avoided horrible things, you know, even death, by following their uh, gut instinct or their intuition. So I'm a huge believer in that. But yet again, I do feel that some of us have a higher level of intuition than others. And some of us are more apt to recognize dangerous situations than others. That's also age-related because when you're a child and then definitely an adolescent, you're still thinking with that more primitive area of your brain and making decisions with that area. So you may not make the best decisions even if you do listen to your gut instinct. Makes sense. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, I, I definitely think that 
people have a varying level of, of course, intuition, uh, situational awareness, emotional awareness in general. So although things like that, that scale, maybe you could put it on a scientific chart or trying to apply the scientific method to, but some of these things I don't feel like if you try to explain it to a scientific community, it's going to be scoffed at, of course. But well, of course. But if you have, if you're in tune, I think there's a, I think there's a thing, and this is again my just my opinion to having, you know, situational awareness, uh, emotional awareness, things like that. I think that that's definitely um, something that we that I tr- tend to trust. You know, mm-hmm. you get a feeling in certain situations. You do. And oftentimes, it's not a bad idea to follow that. So, but again, if you tell and, a scientist that, that's going to be scoffed at. Well, of course, but I, you know, I just think you're sur- being aware of your surroundings, especially in the world today. Uh, you know, you hear about so many things happening, even in my little town of Gray. There have been some things that have happened. So you've got, yeah. If something's got, telling you to maybe flee the situation, mm-hmm. or be aware or of what's you going see on, a situation to to where you could help, but. You know, that gets into bystander intervention and all that kind of stuff, too. But because you all know that as the number of bystanders increases in a situation, the likelihood of help will decrease. The Kitty Genovese effect. Kitty Genovese effect, most definitely. We have, like, controlled fear. Controlled fear is good. Controlled fear is a good thing. But two, two 3,000 years ago, our ancestors dealt with real fear because, you know, they had to deal with disease, famine. How are we going to make fire and eat? Is a bear going to come and eat me? Now exactly. it's like, I'm afraid somebody's going to make a mean comment on my Instagram photo. Oh, and that is so true. Well yes. said, Tom. So that generational thing is, so, well, if it just a, a, it's a, a way of life back then. I don't mm-hmm. think any of us can really conceive of and in the thought processes. But has this, this constant messaging of fear, be afraid of this, be afraid of that, Oh, you need this not to be afraid. Has that diluted a lot of people's thinking to not be so much aware of real fears like viruses, wars, um, expansions of wars, where large numbers of people can be killed and, and horrors can be inflicted on people? Has, has the fear messaging diluted our sensitivity to genuine fear and genuine danger? I think so. Because when I look back on my own life, my fears very rarely have been life-threatening fears. You know, they've been, to me, sometimes very silly things, kind of like social media. Is anybody going to like what I put up on social media? Um, Am I... Will I run into traffic on my way to work? You know, those kinds of things. But so I, I, and I think to a certain extent, not only does that point to the shallowness of our world right now, and I don't know if I'm, I'm putting this the the correct way or not, but uh, we have been, conditioned maybe to fear things that we should not fear Mm -hmm. and we've gotten away from the things that really you know you were talking about viruses and 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 different things that you know 
can actually cause harm to your health or well-being. Exactly, exactly. So, uh, you know, it's not going to cause me harm if nobody likes what I put on social media. But the corona or the COVID virus could could kill me. What might I have worried about more on one day than the other? So, yeah, it's, yeah. I think it's conditioned to think. It makes sense because whenever you really you're looking at the situation. If you're feeling anxiety or fear, that's your nervous system telling you that there's a perceived threat, right? And although our fears now are different than what they were back in the day, so people get anxious or fearful public speaking. So let's take a step back. Why are we getting fearful of public speaking? Well, back in the day, we were very, and we still are, of course, we still like to adhere to a tribe. We like our group. We are very, we can be clicky, right? And so back in the day, if you weren't a part of a tribe, if there was more of others than of you, you were at significant risk of not being on this earth anymore, right? So when you're in front of a group of people, you're being judged, potentially. You've got a lot of eyes on you. Whenever you're in a nature setting multiple hundred years ago, if you had a lot of eyes on you in nature, that means that, oh no, I'm in trouble here. So there's still that primal instinct within us. It's just we haven't uh, found a way in which to modernize it. Like we don't have the distinction right now to where public speaking, it's not an actual threat to my health or well-being. It's a challenge. But still, because there's that primal instinct in us, we're still associating that with what could have happened way back in the day. And there's a Very tribe of well people said, yes. on the other end, and there's one of you. <laughs> You run from that dinosaur. It's, it's, yeah. it's, it's there's there's safety in numbers. We exactly. always like to say, and whenever it's just you, it can be very very scary when you're the outsider. Very true. Very true. How does how might like social anxiety come into play there? Because you know what you just said, I have never framed it that way. I've never thought of that, and it makes just a boku amount of sense. It's just how does social anxiety maybe come into play like that? Maybe like for people who may fear just those one-on-one interactions even, not necessarily a room, but. Yeah, and I think it kind of reverts back to the same thing of being judged harshly. And if I don't have a group of people that I adhere to, then what is my, like I'm not going to survive. So when we're in these social situations, it's still there's that primal area in the back of our head that says if I don't make a connection or if I'm not you know, the life of a party or merging well with others, there's something maybe inherently wrong with me as well as, hey, uh, this is something that's primal to me. I want to be a part of a group setting and be with uh, and make connections. So whenever there's that incongruence there, I definitely feel like it can cause you to be anxious. And again, it reverts back to being judged negatively or harshly we don't like to be viewed in that manner at least most people because there's there's a, a individual who's not come to mind right off the bat but they name a few tenets that we all strive for connection a group as well as um uh, uh the the particular words aren't coming to me in the in the uh, where it's we've talked about so many different things that's kind of made me hiccup on it but we strive to have at least at our baseline connection with others and to feel accomplished. And so I think that all relates to it. But um, I think that when it comes to social anxiety and you can di- agree or disagree or um, 
come in with your own opinion. When it comes to social anxiety, potentially there was a time in your early childhood or adolescence growing up to where you were excluded from something or you were judged harshly in, a gr in front of a group of people. And so as a result of that conditioning, that's why you now feel uh, in your adulthood, even though you can't consciously remember it or recognize it or make that connection, you'll still feel uh, anxiety. In, uh, when in a group of others. So it can be a number of, of, of different things. It's When it comes to mental difficulties, like you know, Mom, it's it's not Everybody's different. Everybody's I, different. I just, I don't even know, I don't know what other phrase to use. But I wanted to share this with you all. Every year, Chapman University does a survey of American fears, okay, our culture. And these were the top 10 fears of 2022, Number one was corrupt government officials. 62% were very afraid or afraid. Number two, people I love becoming seriously ill. 60%. Russia using nuclear weapons. 59.6. Now that was a fear I had when I was growing up because I grew up during the Cold War. And they, you know, we had drills and we got under our desk. You know how that was going to protect us from the nuclear war. But anyway, so that was a surprise to me that that was still. Uh, number four, people I love dying, 58%. Number five, the U.S. becoming involved in another world war. That was 56%. Number six, pollution of drinking water, 54.5%. Seven, not having enough money for the future. 53%. Number eight, economic financial collapse, 53%. Pollution of oceans, rivers, and lakes, 52 And then number 10, biological warfare, which was feared by 51.5%. So I thought that was interesting. And again, that is American fears. It just goes to show how across time, potentially our fears due to our, our environment has change they've changed exactly so is that do you think it's a shrinking world too because those are a lot of global they're american american spheres but but they're the global world. sensitivities yeah. yes definitely no social media fear on there so <laughs> yeah take that Zuckerberg. <laughs> the uh i read some well depending on the the uh research you read um and the uh the economic statistics the anxiety and depression treatment market from between 2024 and I think 2027 is could hit anywhere from 16 billion to 20 billion dollars in medications globally. Um, North America leading the way there, of course, not surprisingly, Europe being second. Um, how successful has medication been in treating these anxieties since? We've got this host of anti-anxiety, uh, anti-depressive, anti-psychotic anti medications, just a, a, an entire pharmacy packed to the packed shelves with, to treat this, and yet it seems it's never been higher. There's never been more uncertainty and more anxiety. So how much is, is the medication or how much is the medication, the big pharma's market doing to help people? Is it helping at all? Or do you see alternative ways for, for people to 
live in a world and manage anxiety beyond another pill. Again, and this this is my opinion, I believe we are over-medicated. And one reason I believe that is, in our culture, we look for a quick fix, and a pill can be a quick fix. But if you're just taking a pill for a psychological issue, it's like just putting a Band-Aid on. You're not getting at the root cause. If it's fear-based, you're not getting at the root of, of what that fear is. I myself believe that before you go the medication route, you need to try cognitive behavioral therapy in in that you, it's talk therapy, it's therapy using um, strategies, behavioral strategies to help you deal with your issues. One thing that, and I tell my students this, one thing that scares me is I believe we have, the doctors may get mad, but I believe that we have medical professionals who should not be prescribing drugs for psychological disorders. I don't think that a general practitioner, I think that you need to go to a psychologist or a psychiatrist if you are going to go the route of medication. But always pair medication with behavioral techniques and try those behavioral techniques by themselves first. Um, I think that's well said. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Very. Um, it's definitely... I'm, I'm not anti-medication because yeah. I have seen medication work and work tremendously well. So I don't want people to think that I am anti-medication. No. But I just think that we need to watch. I, I think that's definitely the perspective of a lot of mental health uh, practitioners. Now, some disorders... Schizophrenia. Schizophrenia. Antipsychotics are necessary because... You know, no matter what sort of talk therapy is utilized, whatever um, approach is utilized, you're going to need that medication. And I agree with you in that, for sure, ADHD, I, I have seen personally just it been over-diagnosed, and there's been over-prescription uh, given for ADHD. And definitely was well said with, you know, if you are experiencing distressing anxiety, perhaps going and seeking a counselor first um, and trying to work through those difficulties on the initial end is a good idea. And then either in conjunction or then later on utilizing the psychotropics, as Tom mentioned, the antidepressants and in extreme cases, anti-anxiety agents. And and I don't like the stigma out there about medication because... There is a stigma. there, There is a stigma but if you had strep throat, you would go to the doctor and get an antibiotic to get right, better. exactly. If a medication, in conjunction with counseling or by itself, like with psychotropics, uh, if a medication can help you take it, take yes, it. Yes, a, a, a thousand you know, percent. Yeah, I'm not anti-medication no. on that point. Me yes. either, by any stretch of the imagination. And just, again, as another disclaimer, we're not medical professionals. Do not take what we say as advice. Please seek direction from your medical professional. So uh, I kind of want to ask you, too, Mom, what are some scary things? And this goes for all of our, uh, all the co-hosts, too. What were some scary things to us whenever we were kids or even as an adult? 
Like what? Maybe what? What movie or you know? Uh, well, when when I was in elementary school, there was a popular show that was on right after school called Dark Shadows, and it was a show about vampires essentially. And I would run home from school and I would watch that. Well, eventually it got to the point where it, it was scaring me. And at night, I would have, I had really long hair. I would have to make sure that my hair was over my neck so Barnabas Collins couldn't come and bite me in the night. Uh, so uh, my mom finally figured out what I was doing and there was no more dark shadows for me. Oh, wow. Scary. That's <laughs> creepy. Tom, is there anything that you can recollect that maybe was... Yeah, and it, water, any kind of deep water. Oh. Deep water, you can't see. Like, I don't like the ocean. I've been, I've been to, like, beaches maybe three, four times in my life. No, I'm interested in going to the oceans or lakes because when I was a kid, also, the film Jaws came out. Yes. Right. You yep. have the poster of the girl swimming with, like, the shark coming up through <laughs> the water. And we went to the beach when I was, like, Disneyland when I was, like, six or seven, Right. And so we're out there, and there's the ocean, and it's like, oh, there's the ocean. Must be a bunch of sharks in there. Right. But we go by, like, SeaWorld was down there, I think, at the time. Or they had this big, somebody, whatever, whatever it was, had this huge billboard with this killer whale on it. You know, like, killer whale. Yes. Which, oh, if you're a kid, you hear a killer whale, you don't need to hear any more than Well, you think that, that. killer whale's going to come kill me, is what you think. Well, here's what, let me, let me deconstruct I don't know. This may, I don't know what this says about me, but anyway, make your own conclusions. Um, somehow, somebody said something while we were, they were talking about SeaWorld, and somebody, I overheard this sentence, oh, well, whales are actually mammals like us. They can breathe air. So I get it in my mind, if we go to SeaWorld, the killer whale will like follow us back to the hotel and eat me. So I can say that. could be in the water because, you know, killer whales are, if they're anything they're known for other than being, you know, inconspicuous in public it would be <laughs> memorizing license plates of cars from tennessee and following them back to hotels so this is no this is what That's i thought smart. Well, this is what i was like yeah it's totally... gonna knock on the door like land shark from the old saturday yes, night live show yes. and just like <laughs> so i don't i don't like water i don't go near water but there I, can we go. Un- I can understand yeah. how you as a child would come to that conclusion absolutely yeah, You're a, a very smart should... child. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, no, very I don't know about that. I know. I know. I don't know about that. That was, yeah, opinions vary about my intuition, believe me. <laughs> so, yeah. But do you know, fun fact, I my parents took me to Universal when I was young, and they had Jaws, the, the mechanical shark that they used yes. as Jaws, and you could st- they had it hanging up, and you could stand in its mouth. <laughs> Holy cow. <laughs> yes. Okay. There's a lot of shark movie. I, I, like every year, there's like yeah. another CGI. What's that? Shark Sharknado? Shark, shark, Sharknado. Sharknado. <laughs> that is the so craziest thing. Di- so many different, what? just odd uh, storylines with how you shark, can make a shark. Is that where sharks are flying through the air? I guess so. Either, or unless they're just swirling around in the water. That would be a hurricane. <laughs> But, but Sharknado, Sharknado. Sharknado sounds better than Shark Kane. <laughs> yeah. So I don't know. Or the Meg, the Meg, <laughs> the Meg. like the like the two hundred foot shark. That, yeah. Yeah, it's out there. <laughs> Apparently, it could should be lurking in the in the waters right now somewhere <laughs> off Florida. Who knows? What What do they say? How much percentage of the ocean has never been explored? It's a significant 
Oh, like 97, yeah, 8%. It, yeah, it's a significant yeah. number. Mm-hmm. So vast. <laughs> so who wants to take a trip to the beach? Right. right. <laughs> Not Tom. No, thanks. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting to think about like how your fear or, yeah, just what you fear will evolve over the course of from childhood to adulthood. So like I said, mine was public speaking and adolescence and into early adulthood. But for me, early on, I think it was just in general, just ghosts, right? Like the unknown. And I think that's another thing that could have been mentioned, that we could have mentioned in this podcast, is like the unknown is very enticing. We want to know. Whenever we can't access something, oh, we want to know more about it, right? And so whenever you hear people talk about their experience with quote-unquote ghosts, they will talk about either seeing something very briefly or something moves. And so just the unknown of what was that or where did that come from? Who is that? It's, you know, it's fearful, but it's also enticing. The mystery, I think, really grasps people. So for me, I think, and I'll now talk about the experience and how it integrates into it. I think my intrigue, but also fear of ghosts, there was one time when I was younger, again, this is my experience, this is, there could be a number of things that happened in this moment, but I was a young child, I was sick one night, and this could, maybe I was experiencing a night terror where I awoke during a dream, but I remember waking up at night, and it was almost like this cloaked figure was entering into the room very slowly. It was very tall, very slim, maybe the hat man, I don't know. And so it stopped at the very end of the bed. I was so petrified in fear that all I knew to do, we talk about the fight or flight response. In this case, it was the freeze response. I was so petrified in fear, I did not move at all. And the next thing I know, I'm just looking at it and almost immediately it sinks right into the floor. Odd experience around Halloween, thought I would include that in there. So I think that's where my intrigue with ghosts really started is like, what was that? Again, it could have been a number of things. I was sick. Maybe the uh, nighttime Tylenol was kicking a little, t- a little too hard, and I was seeing the Hat Man, or maybe a night terror, or maybe an encounter with the paranormal. I'll let you be the judge of it. Oh, gosh. I think one of mine was um, I loved the Halloween movies. I loved watching those with my dad growing up. So Michael Myers, and you know how you know people run from him, of course, because he's trying to you know, slash him up. I'd exactly. run, too. So I would have these nightmares and it would become like lucid dreaming where I realize I'm, you know, I'm dreaming, but, um, I would always try to dial 911 on a phone and these kind of, these night terrors kind of evolved as technology evolved. So when I was a kid, I remember like the, uh, I'd have a corded phone and I would be trying to call 911 and I'd get the numbers mixed up. I'd dial 119, 919, just I could never dial just 911 and then I would wake up, um, you know, and as a teenager, it'd be like my, me on my iPhone, like my iPhone would randomly lock up or I'd start like my hands were too sweaty and then the screen wouldn't like detect that my, my thumb was trying to dial 911. It was just so odd. So that was one of my, I guess, just a consistent uh, dream night, I wouldn't call it a dream nightmare that I've had. I think it was kind of creepy. Interesting, very... That's unsettling. That is. (laughs) My Barnabas Collins one was a little weak, I think, after hearing yours. No, Barnabas Collins was scary. (laughs) You 
remember Barnabas Collins? A little bit. Okay. A tiny little bit. Then they did the movie with Johnny Depp. I think so. It was, it yeah. was, I, 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 I didn't see it, though. But yeah. I don't know. Yeah, they did a yeah. Dark Shadows. Well, let's finish on maybe a movie recommendation. If you're still in the Halloween spirit and you want a scary movie, maybe get that controlled fear bone tickled a little bit. Do you have a particular recommendation that you give? See, I like scary movies that are more psychological than just, you know, gore and things. And when you were saying that, the first thing that popped into my head, I think it's called The Others with Nicole Kidman. Yeah. It was based on, oh, I I can't, I think it was based on on a story or something. I can't remember. But that movie is so psychologically spooky it's one of the few scary movies that I've watched more than once. So I would recommend The Others if you like just a psychological kind of scare. But it's got ghosts and it's got that in it, it too. It hits all angles. Yes, it Very does. Good. I don't think I've seen that movie, so I'm going to watch yeah. it now. Now, I hope that's that's the name of it. And, and you know, movie, I like movies where you can't guess what happens. Yes. Mm-hmm. There's been a lot of movies. There's so many movies that are so predictable, and the best ones have that. And and this one blew me away. Wow. Well, I know what I'm doing after work today. <laughs> well, Lisa, Mom, Psychology Goddess, thank you for joining the podcast today. We appreciate your time. Thank you, my sweet son. It's been fun. Good. Good. Yeah, I have to agree. But anytime we talk about psychology, this is a normal conversation for you. Well, me. that is true. We do talk about psychology <laughs> a lot. People think, oh my goodness, that's I know. It's exciting like at your house. <laughs> right. But it's, uh, it's enjoyable. So uh, the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. <laughs> Soundberry listeners, we appreciate you taking the time out of your day to listen to this edition of The Sound Barrier. Please make sure to share this with others who may be interested in psychology. Be a friend. Tell a friend. We want to shout out Brandon on the X's and O's with the Entertainment Technology uh, Department for helping us put this on. Make sure to visit us at northeaststate.edu. That's northeaststate.edu. If you're interested in coming to college, you're a high school senior, you've not been to college for a while, come give us a shot. We think that you'll enjoy it. And you can maybe even engage in the Entertainment Technology Department as well, do cool things like this with the podcast. And we'll talk at you next time as we continue to break the barrier.